coming up to the stage. Is this going to work? Please work. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. All right. Josh Cybulski is coming up in a second. Let's see if I can get everything going in time. He's an author, a libertarian, a Canadian, an educator. Let's see if we can get things going in the nick of time. We're starting. See if I'm up there, and let's get uh, Josh in the building. If you guys have Twitter, I'm gonna link. I'm gonna link his uh, Twitter. He wrote a novel, second story, second story work. Gonna ask him some stuff about that. Gonna ask him some stuff about what's like in Canada and COVID and things like that. I'll link his uh, his stuff in the chat. That's him on Twitter. Once he pops in the building, we'll commensificate, guys. This will be an episode of Call Me Ignorant. Takes a second to load. All right. Josh Sabulski getting on in here. Let's see what's going on. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Oh, no, I cannot hear you. Can you hear me? Ah, okay. Um try to I'm going to remove you I'm going to kick you out and you come back in alright okay let's try this again without the oops always something all right let's see if we got it all right hello hey hey josh how's it going man welcome good buddy how are you pretty good pretty good so thanks for coming on um you know we're uh, gonna talk about uh can i love having can uh, libertarians on i'm glad you're from canada because i have some questions about what it's like up there so um i kind of did a little intro for you uh a second ago but yeah you're an author an educator what, what are you an educator in are you like a um a teacher it says yeah do you teach like homeschool do you do like private classes or at a school i'm actually uh, a corporate instructor Huh. That's yeah. interesting. I didn't expect Still that. Still a teacher. Yeah. What yeah. is that? Yeah. Well, yeah. So you do training, things like that? Yeah. So cool. I'm a, like a training consultant. So I design programs and teach them as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. What, um, any specific field or is it all kinds of different corporations and things like that? No, it's mostly, so a lot of it is like occupational licensing okay. that I do. Interesting. Uh, yeah, which is a favorite of ours, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> want to talk to you about that because that's uh, a thing that gets brought up. That's uh, w- probably one of the things that I'm most libertarian on. I'm not really a uh, libertarian anymore, but I basically think there should be almost no occupational licensing. Um, but yeah, like th- that's one thing that always comes up with libertarians is like how do you square living and working in the world when you're uh, when you want there to be less and less government and things like that. But yeah, what's your thoughts on whether occupational licensing should even exist? Yeah, I mean, you basically just laid it out. Not a big fan of it, obviously. Um, There's certainly the element of like, what do you do? Like if somebody's going to be a lawyer, they have to have some form of training. But in the end, to me, it comes down to the employer. So if you're going to be a, you know, a good company that people go to trust, especially in the free market, you better make sure that the services that you're offering are from people who know what they're doing. So I think that's super important. So if I go to get a lawyer, that lawyer better know what he's doing. He better know, you know, a thing or two about the law and same with the doctor, right? If I go to, to get an operation, I would like that doctor to know what they're doing versus just like, you know, Jim, who has a high school diploma, who, you know, has worked has hunts and cuts up animals and stuff like that. Like, I don't want that guy being my doctor. So to right. me, it comes down to the employer. It's really, you know, they're the ones liable for the services that they provide. If they're bad services, obviously their company's not going to last very long, but also to me, legal ramifications that come from that as well. Yeah, sure. So do you, are you, you know, what kind of libertarian are you? Are you kind of, if you could wave a wand, would you, would you like erase the state? Are you like a minarchist, a voluntarist? Like how do you define yourself? Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of uh, an anarchist, like without adjectives, really. Okay. I don't, I don't subscribe to any one school. I'm not like an ANCAP. I'm not a, like a voluntarist or anything like that. Um, it depends on the day, really. Like, and it's funny too, in my book, the main character 
does that. And I've had a few people reach out to me and ask me about that. Like if it was on purpose, um, cause the character, the main character, Derek describes himself as an ANCAP at one point, but also he mentions that he's an agorist and he also mentions that he's a volunteerist. And I did that on purpose. Cause I go through that every day wow. <laughs> where I'm like, I think I, I feel like I'm an agorist. And then I'm like, no, nah. I mean, I'm, I'm like really, I'm just kind of schizophrenic when it comes to the whole idea of anarchism. Like, I don't know. I always find flaws in certain schools of thought. So I kind of dance from one to the other. So I just say, I don't have any adjectives. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, and you know, this came up the other day in an inter- interview. That's kind of what, to me, one of the distinctions between an agorist and an ANCAP or, or an anarchist is where, you know, we're not in an anarchist society right now. We're nowhere near, to it we're no near to like a voluntary society that where no. the government is is going away but you can't be an agorist unless you're practicing agorism in your daily life like actively trying to like get around the financial system so to me it's it kind of seems like agorism while it's an ideology is kind of a practice like whether it be doing stuff under the table or barter system and and things like that do you kind of do you see where i'm coming from on that yeah, absolutely. I always make the joke to my friends that everybody's an agorist. It just depends what you're talking to them about because yeah. everybody does that where they, you know, you go sell something on you know Craigslist or Facebook or what have you. And you're kind of keeping, you know, you're keeping the state out of it mm-hmm. when you make that transaction or you go, you do under the table work, like you mentioned, same idea. Right. Mm-hmm. So to me, everybody at some point in their life is an agorist. It's just a matter of like, do people practice it every day? And like a hardcore agorist would, they practice it every single day, right? Like that's their philosophy. That's the life that they live. I mean, there's parts of my life that I do that. Like I'll, you know, go help buddy make a fence, you know, and then he'll come help me build a deck at my house. And really that, I mean, that is a form of agorism. We're not trading money. We're just trading each other's time and we're trading each other, our labor, right? So it's, yeah, no, I, I get where you're coming from for sure with that. That too, it seems to me trading labor for labor or goods for goods is kind of even you can't really escape the uh, like the fiat um, monetary system. I mean, you can get as far as you can from it, but it seems like labor for labor is the, the closest thing for the closest thing to pure agorism because you're using their money. I mean, there's if you're even if it's under the table cash where you don't pay taxes on it and stuff, you're still using their inflated uh, ridiculous currency. So it seems like, you know, that's why I'm a big fan of indentured servitude. You know, th- like you should be able to like get someone on your land and like have a servant that is paying off a debt rather than, you know, and I, and I don't mean slavery, I actually mean voluntary indentured servitude. You know, like, yeah. do you think, do, you know, would you, do you think that's uh, a good way, a good way forward? <laughs> well, I mean, that you do see that from time to time with farms. Like I have a lot of family that has farms and they used to bring in, like workers, people who would come and they'd live for free. It's not free. Like you're working on the farm, but that was the idea. Like you're going to come, you're going to get a place to stay. You're going to get three meals a day, but you're going to work. And we're, you know, we may provide you with other things, but it wasn't necessarily money that they were getting. It was, you know, they might get supplies. They might get, you know, different things, but there wasn't really that exchange of like you say, fiat, but you're right. I mean, it's inescapable. I mean, if you want, especially in Canada too, like it's so cold here. I can't go trade. I can't grow carrots in December and go trade them for like, you know, zucchini or something like that it's just not it's just not possible up here i have to go to you know a grocery store and buy food and i need fiat to do it yeah absolutely do you uh do you mind sharing about where you are in canada like are you in like the cold cold it's all kind of cold but where where do you live (laughs) yeah it's all cold i live uh i live in ottawa Ottawa, the capital okay Okay, gotcha cool um yeah so uh, you know that's very interesting that you wrote uh an anarchist or an ancap into your into your book so you know how did I don't know, like quick little kind of side story that I talk about a lot on my shows. I stopped consuming fiction stuff about three years ago. I've I've got fascinated with history, nonfiction, um, all kinds of stuff. But I used to be really, really into um, shows, fiction books. And for some reason, when I got a little bit older, I got, got really into nonfiction. I've been doing that ever since. But I definitely respect people that write and produce fiction that is rooted in the real it can't, it has to be rooted in the real world a little bit you're not describing like things that are impossible but you know have you talked to other people well first of all how long have you been writing fiction and um have you talked to other people that kind of 
don't consume fiction as much and you're trying to pitch your book, you're trying to sell your book, get people into it. Have you heard this story before where people are like, ah, I just do nonfiction, stuff like that? Um, yeah, a little bit. I think it's mostly people who are kind of disillusioned with Hollywood yeah, and they don't want that, to consume movies yes, and TV and stuff to me. like that. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I could understand where people come from. I've really felt that way about movies for a few years. I don't, and it, to me, it's not really so much that. It's just more the quality of films has gone so far downhill um, that I just, I wasn't into movies anymore. And I got really into to TV series, like you say. Um, right now, I'm really into docu-series. Uh, so like you say, history. I don't really watch too much fiction TV or fiction movies. I watch a lot of documentaries. Um, same with reading too. Like I'm reading chaos by Tom O'Neill for the second time. I don't know if you've read that book, but it's super hard to follow. Uh, so I read it once and I was like, I feel like I missed half of what was going on. So I'm reading it again. Uh, but it's about the, the CIA and the Manson murders. Oh, Um, it's super interesting. Yeah. It's really hard to follow because there's about 9,000 characters in it. Mm. Uh, but yeah, like I, I totally understand where people are coming from and history is like you say, way more interesting than fiction. And when I was writing my book, something I did and people really liked this element of it, or at least that's what they, they could be lying, but this is what they tell me (laughs) is that (laughs) they liked the fact that I incorporated a lot of real things that happened, Mm. especially around Vancouver. Um, I would incorporate a lot of the things that took place in because the books, the book happens from 2007 to 2010. And there was a lot going on in Vancouver, um, which if people don't know, Vancouver's in the western part of Canada. It's basically like on the West Coast. Um, And there was a huge drug war going on in Vancouver from 07 to I mean, it's still kind of going on now. Uh, Just rival gangs and stuff like that. So I kind of dropped my characters in the middle of all of that, uh, that chaos. And that was something I really wanted to do because to me it was way more interesting than any fiction that I could write. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's, I never knew that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously I'm an American and like, you know, we make fun of uh, stereotypes all the time, but I honestly, like, it's hard for me to picture a drug war in a Canadian city, even though it's kind of, it's just a city. We're just human. So I'm like, is everyone nice there? (laughs) You know, it's so funny that that's always the American interpretation of Canadians is that we're all nice. I actually think like if you were to compare Americans to a Canadian, to me, uh, we're way more polite than Americans, but Americans are way friendlier. Mm. I don't know if that may, may not make sense to everybody, but like you talk to a Canadian, they're, they're going to say please and thank you. They're going to hold the door for you. But if you approach them as a stranger, they're going to be very standoffish. And it's just our nature. Whereas if you go to the States, like this has been my experience, they're not going to hold the door for you. <laughs> like, and they're probably not going to say please and thank you. However, if like you're walking down the aisle, and you're holding on to like a case of Pepsi or something like that. And they know it's on sale somewhere else. They're going to stop you. And they're going to be like, Hey, you can get that cheaper if you just go over here. And then they'll strike up a conversation with you. And that's been my experience between Canadians and Americans. Wow. Kind of the difference. That's fascinating. I'd never heard that before. I got to think I'll, I'll be on the look for that. Cause I have a lot of Canadian friends and people that listen to the show. So that that's interesting. So what, what's your, you know, I kind of, I, uh, let me, uh, read, I'm going to read real fast your uh, uh, the description. I'm looking at your uh, your book on Amazon right now. So wait, sure. first of all, is it Cybulski? Is that how you how you say it? Yeah, Cybulski. Cybulski. Josh yeah. uh, Cybulski's debut novel explores a generation who were told they could do anything. Some did, and without a doubt, still are. And some became disillusioned at the first signs of of adversity. Meet Sarge, Messi, Hecky, and Arlove. For media school grads who head towards the booming film industry in Vancouver, uh, art is a distant memory as they pursue North Hollywood lights and their spoils of sex, drugs, and let's face it, more drugs. <laughs> but good luck turns bad in second story work as these young men scramble to sustain wedded appetites that they can never satisfy. Sabolsky's gritty tales, one of crime, betrayal, and moral apathy, where the difference between friend and foe is blurred line after line. Sounds really interesting. Um so, yeah. So what was your writing process like? Like, how'd you develop the story? Um, you know, you probably don't want to do any spoilers and things like that, but um, just tell us about about your book. Yeah, sure. Uh, so it actually took me 12 years to write. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was something I actually was living in Vancouver when I started it. Um, and it was an interesting time because I would moved out there to work in the film industry and the film industry completely crumbled basically all around me while I was out there. Um, so it was, I moved there in early 2008 
everybody knows what happened in 2008. And uh, basically, I watched them pull production after production to bring them back to the States because the Canadian dollar was becoming much more on par with the American dollar. So that was what kind of ended that whole thing. So I was there, I wasn't really working and uh, I just really needed something to fill my time. So I started writing the book um, and I, I had taken a lot of elements of what was going on in Vancouver. So I mentioned the drug war. I also had a friend of mine who couldn't find work either. And he ended up joining a gang. Um, and he, so he became a drug dealer and I was like, well, I can't hang out with you anymore. (laughs) So, um, we kind of lost touch a little bit and I would run into him periodically from time to time. And it was weird to watch him go from like wearing, you know, normal kind of, you know, ripped clothes. Cause he didn't have any money. And you know, the next time I'd see him, he'd have like a $600 leather jacket on. And then the time after that, he'd be wearing like an Ed Hardy t-shirt and Ed Hardy hat, which if you remember Ed Hardy way back, it was like, I don't know, it was like hundreds of dollars to buy an article of clothing. And it was just weird to see him every so often with that little bit more money. And then I saw him driving a fancy car and it was like, this is interesting. Like I need to in, kind of incorporate this in, into what I'm writing. Cause I was just writing notes at that point. And I basically spent like, I ended up moving back to Ottawa and I spent like probably about a year, a year and a half, just remembering everything that I'd seen in Vancouver and writing it out. And then I started to write drafts and I wrote drafts probably for about two years. And then I got bored with it because I'm kind of a scatterbrain. So I put it away for, I don't know, probably two years or so. And then I hurt my back and I got basically laid up for eight months. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was like, why don't you like work on your book? It might give you something to do, some purpose while you're just laying here being a bum. And I was like, yeah, it's a good idea. And from that point, that was 2014. And from that point on, I basically just wrote and rewrote and rewrote. And then when the pandemic hit last year, that was a point where I was like, okay, I'm done writing this thing. I'm going to get it out into the world because people are bored. They need something to do. Maybe, maybe I'll, you know, have better luck trying to sell it when no one has anything to do. Mm -hmm. So I put it out and, uh, you know, it's the feedback's been incredible. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate, but I got lucky in the last couple of years of writing it that I got to talk to a guy who had actually robbed a bank. Um, and had gone to jail. So I was fortunate to talk to him. Um, a guy I'd known years ago, I'd worked with had got busted for um, dealing meth and he'd gone to jail for six years. So I got to talk to him and another guy got bust, busted selling weed had, you know, had some issues, legal issues as well. So I got to talk to all these guys who had lived what I was writing. So I could take from their lived experience. And like you say, real life is better than fiction. Um, so I was able to incorporate that as I wrote my later drafts, which made the book, you know, a hell of a lot better. Wow. So whatever. Okay. So what happened with your friend? Did, did he ever get like in trouble? The guy, the guy who you, all of a sudden was driving like a, a nice car and did you ever figure out what happened with him? Yeah. So I actually did probably about six months ago. Uh-huh. Um, I reached out to some people I hadn't talked to in like 10 years. I was like, Hey, you ever hear from so-and-so? I don't want to drop names. Yeah, sure. And they're like, <laughs> Oh yeah. And they sent me a link to his website <laughs> and in his website, he's dressed suit and tie. And he's a business perfect, like a professional. And he's got a LinkedIn page, the whole deal. Like he, he, I don't know what he did money wise, like how, how long he was in the game or what happened to him, but he cleaned himself up on the surface, whether or not, you know, you don't really know, but he's like, he's a business professional. Like he's yeah. Blue wow. collar, uh, sorry, white collar, Yeah, <laughs> which I, I never expected knowing him because he was a blue collar guy at the time. Like he worked on cars and uh, yeah, here he is dressed in a suit. I'd never even seen him wear a tie, but it was, it was surreal to see, but I was just happy that he wasn't in a hole or, you know, in prison somewhere, you know, good for him. Hopefully he has cleaned up his life. Yeah. Wow. That's okay. And so it might be interesting to go through, you know, like some of the real world stuff that you wrote about. I mean, obviously f- fiction novel, but so you, did you go to media? Did you mention you worked in the film industry, but did you, did you go to school for that as well? Yeah, I actually went to broadcasting school first, like journal broadcast journalism. And then I went to school for film production after. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so broadcast journalism, meaning, meaning you're on camera, you're on mic, you know? Yeah. yeah so being an, an anchor or whatever. Interesting. Yeah. Do you do yeah, any of that? So, do you do that now? I mean, it says it on your Twitter profile, but do you do like a podcast or like any any on camera on mic stuff now? Yeah, I do. I still do radio. Oh. Uh, I do hockey play by play. Really? For a couple hockey teams. Yeah. Sweet. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. an awesome job, man. Oh, it's a sweet gig. Yeah. <laughs> Are you? Um, so, 
how does that work? Do you are you able to do it from your your place or do you go to an actual studio? I actually go to the go to the hockey games and sit up in the booth and call the games. I mean, wow. I haven't done it in a year because yeah, yeah. of uh, obviously COVID, but yeah. yeah. So for you know, I've done it for I've done it since high school. Um, and all, kind of off and on as I you know moved away, moved back, I would get back into it. But I've done it. Uh, I did it for the last five seasons, and then last year I was supposed to start with another team and do two two different teams. Mm. But uh, yeah, man, it's a blast. I'm, that was probably my calling, and I I hope I didn't miss it because I you know I still do it. I still you know hold on to that dream of getting to call hockey games for a living, right. but. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I would love to call baseball personally, but there's just never been an opportunity because baseball is my jam. But maybe someday we'll see. Do you? Uh, so you said you're the. So when you say you're play by play, are you like the main guy, and then there's the color commentator? So you you call the game, or is there? I call people? the game. Okay. Yeah, I call the game for a lot of years. It's just been me doing both jobs, playing mm. <laughs> play by play and color. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we kind of. Uh, I had a color guy for two years. And then uh, he got a play-by-play gig, so he moved out west. Um, so I've been kind of solo for the last year I did it. I was solo, but wow. I didn't mind that. I mean, I, I like the sound of my own voice, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't mind doing both. I don't. I'm, I don't think I've, I'm trying to think of. I don't think I've ever met someone who called games as a as a gig. Um, oh, yeah. That's really cool, man. Um, do you know who Steve Inman is? no i don't think so so we this is one of the the bits that we do on my show all the time is uh so what he he was a uh a broadcaster he's a play-by-play guy and then when covid hit he lost his job so what he does now is he does play-by-play of street fights and riots and shit like that i'll say i'll dm you his uh his twitter profile but it's like antifa like beatdowns and all kinds of like like car wrecks in the street so he he doesn't show his face anymore he's just there's an icon of him in the corner and he's doing play-by-play of all this because you got to check this guy out it's hilarious i I would love that (laughs) cool somebody did that with joe buck i forget what the clip was but joe buck who does a lot of the the baseball games i remember just killing myself laughing over it. So yeah, I'd definitely like to check that out. Yeah. So when you were in, uh, you went to media school for broadcasting and uh, did you, you know, is there kind of a seedier side of, you know, is like sex, drugs, rock and roll, the thing that's mentioned in the the bio of your, of your description of your book. Is there a, a, a scene like that in the Vancouver area? Uh, <laughs> like ghetto, well, it was when like, I was yeah, there. Scene? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, when I was there, Vancouver is a weird city, or at least it was. I can't speak to what it is now because I haven't been there in like 10 years. Uh, but when I was there, so it, it, like there's a couple neighborhoods that are literally the richest neighborhoods in Canada. You're talking about you drive, the, you walk down the street and, you know, everybody's driving Lambos and Ferraris and, you know, $200,000, $300,000 sports cars. But you walk six blocks over and you're literally in the poorest part of the entire country. Um, which is, it's called East Hastings. And I worked probably about eight blocks from East Hastings for about a year when I lived in Vancouver. So you would see people filter up to where I worked and then you'd see the police kind of just bring them back. And then they'd filter back up and the police would just bring them back. And if they filtered over to those rich neighborhoods, the police would just bring them back. And what it was, it was almost like The Wire. You know, have you ever watched The Wire? It's my favorite show of all time. Okay, good. (laughs) So uh, I forget if it's three or season three or four, but they they basically create the little area where it's like, okay, it's legal to deal here. And that's kind of what East Hastings. Yeah. Yeah. Amsterdam. Exactly. Um, So that's what they've basically done with East Hastings. They kind of keep it contained and that's where everybody, if you walk down the street, I mean, there's needles everywhere. It's crazy. Um, But that's one pocket of Vancouver, but you go to other areas, like you go um, to like Gastown or Yale town, there's the, the club district and, you know, people aren't using needles. They're, you know, they're, doing mdma they're doing blow all that kind of stuff um so that's that area you go out to the suburbs and the suburbs in vancouver are wild everybody like the drug use out there is crazy too um which is very surprising because it's suburbia you think families and stuff like that but there's there was always a culture in vancouver at the time that i lived there that basically everybody smoked pot and beyond that so it wasn't abnormal to see like a family man who would go and you know 
buy like oxy or something like that for the weekend like monday to friday he's your typical suburban dad saturday sunday it's time to rage that's that's it's a weird thing in vancouver it's totally different than ottawa because everyone in ottawa is pretty boring uh so no one really does much of anything in ottawa but vancouver was it was party city for sure wow that's yeah, I mean every it's every city has this little little uniqueness to it. But any you know, one thing I wanted to ask about, um, I've never really gotten into this th- that much. But what do you think it is about art where it there's? And I'm speaking for myself as well. I'm a professional professional musician with a with a past, you know, with a lot of drugs and booze and and hedonistic stuff. But what do you think it is with like art, the human condition, and people chasing the dragon so to speak like why do you think that is over you know more square or you know i don't know corporate business types or like why do you think that is it's a big topic and it's almost unanswerable like but why do you think musicians and the creative types get into like getting fucked up (laughs) like and you know (laughs) and and like balancing that with their work and things like that yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think a lot of it has to do with just being like open minded and open to experience. And you almost if you're if you are writing, whether you're a musician, an author, whatever, your whole thing is you want to be able to you want to write a, like what your truth is, but you also want to go outside of the box. And that's really to me, like, you know, using and things like that, you're going outside the normal sort of three by five card of what's what your brain should think about and you're you're thinking about you know all kinds of crazy stuff so you want your brain to kind of get to that place and that's really what drug use does at least to me like um like i i don't i haven't god i haven't done any drugs in 12 years i think the last probably the last time i smoked pot was like in my mid-20s um but like i i love having a bourbon and sitting down and writing and it's not like i get drunk or anything like that but it just helps me kind of get out of my normal uh, brainwaves, like what I would typically think about and just expand into something a little bit different. Um, So that's, I mean, that's kind of why I think people do. I also think too, like you're just in a scene where everybody's just trying to have a good time Mm. and creative types tend to be a little bit more depressed. (laughs) Like we, because we are thinking about weird things all the time, it kind of takes you to a weird place where, you know, it affects your, I guess your mental health. So when you let loose, you want to really let loose. And I think that's where kind of the, the partying and stuff like that comes from is that you just, you want to feel good, really. Yeah. Do you think that, um, yeah, everyone's got kind of a different theory on like genetics and things like that, but do you think there's a, you know, genetic or biological predisposition to being an, an artist? Ooh, that's a good one. I think so. I think it's something that you're like, I see it in my daughter, uh, my daughter's four and I can see it that she is like, all she wants to do is play music and draw and she loves to write and stuff like that. Um, and I look at some of my other friends, kids who they're not the artistic type and their kid wants to play sports. They like, I want to play baseball. I want to drive a car, like drive a little car around. Like my daughter has no interest in that stuff. She's just, she's an artist and that's, that's what I am. My wife is also very artistic too. Um, so I think, I think there really is something to that. Um, I know like my dad was a, a mechanical engineer, so he was like, he, he drew and all kinds of stuff. And he was, he went to school for radio as well. So he had that artist in him too. Uh, so yeah, I definitely think there is something there. And then my brother's also in broadcasting. So he is the writing type, the artistic type. And he's, he, my brother's a carpenter too. Like, uh, he, you know, does all kinds of crazy stuff with wood. So yeah, I definitely think there is something to that. Yeah. Do you think you can, you think it's able to be measured at all? That's a tough one. I go way back and forth on this one. I like, it's, it's very hard to, you know, how would you, how would you measure like someone being more, you know, more into something? How can you measure interest and motivation and things like that? Yeah. Isn't that kind of what the communists tried to do? Like, like they kind of just keep you on a narrow path. Like your dad's an artist, you're an artist, or like, I don't think they did that specifically, but it's like, you're, you know, your dad's a scientist. So you should be a scientist. Meanwhile, you should be a janitor. (laughs) You just don't have it. I don't know. That's really tough. The whole idea of like measuring it. I think a lot of parents do that. They do try to measure because like, the, the whole expression of like measuring up. And when I was a kid, I was always trying to measure up to my father. My father was like a math genius. 
Um, so I mentioned he was a mechanical engineer. He was also an aerospace engineer. So my dad knew math and my brother and I both failed grade 10 math. <laughs> like, and my dad was just, would just rip his hair out and be like, how's this even possible? <laughs> like he just couldn't understand. And he would sit there for hours trying to teach it to us and we just didn't get it. And it just, it was, you know, something he didn't pass on. So as far as the artist thing measuring, I don't really know how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and I, that's a tough one. There's also a, uh, it's a, you know, so I'm, I'm a music teacher and I see everything from kids that, and why well, I teach adults too, but most of I mean, the adults that I teach all are interested in learning, learning music, you know, I mean, it's their money. So why would you be paying just to like do something you don't want to do? But as far as the kids, it's everything from their parents are straight up making them do it for a set period of time. Like you will do this for 10 lessons because I want you to try piano and see if it sticks everything to a kid that is obsessed and will practice for four hours a day. And they're like really interested. I, I kind of have a theory where, you know, interest and motivation, they, they clearly are, are linked. And it, it's, if you can't learn something, especially as a kid, there's an element of you don't want to, or it's just like, you're just not into that thing. Um, so my question is for this, this math thing, when you were a little younger, did you want to learn it? Like, were you trying, uh, were you, were you saying, Hey, I want to learn this cause I'm interested in math or you just wanted to do well. Like, how did you see that correlation back in the day? Yeah. I didn't want any of those things. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to learn it. I didn't care if I did well. I just yeah. wanted to get my 50 and, and right. move on. Yeah. And that was, that was it for me. Like, and my brother too, like we both, my brother and I both knew when we were young, we wanted to be in broadcasting. Yeah. That was our, that was our thing. And we just needed, all we needed was just to get grade 11 math and get out the door and like move <laughs> on with our lives. Yep. So yeah, there definitely was. It's funny too, cause I'm older now and like, I've started to take up, uh, you know, in the last year I've built a deck and I've built a fence and I'm getting into building things. And I'm like, so behind in math i'm like god why didn't i learn this when i was younger and yeah, <laughs> I remember, you're speaking oh, yeah, my language man i just started homesteading and when i try to when building or planning something i'm just like shit dude <laughs> like yeah. i see angles and numbers i'm like man i should have tried harder <laughs> there's so much of it where i just wish i could jump in a time machine and, and go back and tell my you know 16 year old self like you're you're gonna need to learn how to change tires yeah and uh, change your oil and, and stuff like that so much that my dad was like you know, come help me change these tires. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to go meet my buddies behind the portable and uh, <laughs> we're going to go McDonald's after. So that's <laughs> yeah. no, cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, now I'm, I'm like, I would love to learn that. And I watch YouTube videos instead. And it's like, well, this is what my dad was trying to teach me 20 years ago. I probably made a mistake there, right. but I do, I do definitely think interest um, really matters. And I think with like education, this, uh, box that we put people in in school it's like no you have to learn grade 9 10 11 math and grade 9 and 10 science and english every year it's like really there needs to be more choice for and i know people say like their kids are so young how do they know what they want but by the time you're like 13 or 14 your interests you know what your interests are um and i think th that some choice could be made there with what you're interested in and going after those things will give kids a lot more purpose than how we have it now where it's like you have to learn this math that you'll never use and you'll have to learn this periodic table that you know you'll you're never going to use if you want to be a you know a sports broadcaster or whatever yeah it's a very dumb system it's very dumb it yeah you know and i actually always enjoyed things like mem memorizing the periodic table just because i liked memorizing stuff you know you know i'm uh i've memorized all the um where all the countries in the world are at one point i could pick out any continent and just tell you all, all the countries nice. but i never used that but i was into memorizing stuff and i was also into impressing people so I was like, oh, like, I know where like all the places in Africa are, you know, but like, I was, so much of the stuff in the system is, is dumb from a practical standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, do you, so you have a, you have a daughter, do you, you have one, one child? I have two. Two. Okay. Do, do you, yeah. are you going to plant, like, are you going to homeschool? Are you going to put them in public? Like what I'm sure most people these days kind of bad mouth public education. I, I see where they're coming from. I'm one of those people, but what's your mm -hmm. plan as far as uh, educating them? Yeah. So right now they're in private preschool. Um, they'll be there till they're both four. Uh, so my daughter is going to school this, this fall. And yeah, we are, I mean, we're, we're not in a position to send them to private school, even though I would definitely prefer that. So it will be public school. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate that 
I'm like the poorest person in a very wealthy area of Ottawa. <laughs> so uh, the school we have is is quite good. And I actually have some family that teaches there, which is lucky is, or not teaches there, but they work there. Um, so it's lucky in a way that, you know, there is some trust there with the school. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I get where people are like, I really don't want to send my kids to public school. And for most people, if you're the typical, you know, uh, middle-class family, you don't really have a choice. Right. I would love to, you know, homeschool my kids, but it's just not, it's just not possible yep. or have them in some other option. But my, I mean, I have cousins that were homeschooled and in a lot of ways it was good. Um, so two of the three of them own their own businesses because they're, they're, they've kind of been self-sufficient since they were kids. They were taught to be that way. Um, the other one's a mess though. <laughs> so I don't really, I don't really know if it's good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of maybe another stereotype. I, I, you know, I'm thinking about Canada and to me, Canada is just like completely communist or like culturally communist, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the woke stuff, the, you know, the equality, things like that. So I kind of just assumed that Canada would be worse than the United States, but also you're talking about a bunch of different areas. It's kind of mm-hmm. generalizing is fun sometimes, but it's really kind of short-sighted and things like that. But like, is the, in America, I'm sure you've heard of, you know, critical race theory and all this, you know, crap that they're showing kids. Is that pretty rampant up there in, in Canada or is like, what's the public school system? Is there, is there a department of education in, in Canada? Yeah, it's passed down to the, um, a lot of it is passed down to the provinces, okay. same with health too. Okay. Uh, a lot of it goes province by province. So that's essentially like our state. Um, we don't have that push that you guys have in the state so much. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's definitely there. It does exist, but it, it's kind of board by board. So it depends where you are. If you're in Toronto, uh, you're probably, it's a more left-leaning city. You're probably going to see more of that kind of thing. Uh, if you're in Thunder Bay, which is like a Northern Ontario city, much more conservative, you're probably going to see less of it. Um, yeah, it really comes down to the boards, which I actually think is better in some ways because it's more localized and i like the idea of everything being more local um so that's good in a lot of ways and like ottawa here we have the ottawa uh public school board so everything is is kind of downloaded to the local board and the issues are do pertain to to local people so yeah i mean you go to universities though and it's everywhere i mean just like universities in the states right the woke stuff is is definitely everywhere Wow. Yeah. I mean, how do you think that happened, man? How do you think that academia got, I mean, it's so bad. I mean, I'm a college dropout. I'm actually pretty happy about that, even though I wasted money, but I definitely didn't get indoctrinated. Um, I mean, I got indoctrinated a lot living in the DC art scene. Uh, but how do you think that actually, before we get into that, cause I don't want to talk about education in, in Canada for like kind of the rest of the interview, but I do want to just go back to your book really fast. Which sure. one of the four people is the, is the ANCAP and how did you kind of work that into, I just say ANCAP cause I used to be one and it's just like the thing that rolls off the tongue, uh, yeah. you know, but which one of them is the ANCAP and how does that work in, in the story? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's the main character. His name is Derek, uh, in the description, it's Sarge. Sarge. Okay. Uh, so that's the, that's the main character in the book, how it works. It's really kind of, uh, they're just kind of throwaway comments really. Um, so there's one scene where they're all kind of hanging out, uh, and they're doing blow, uh, just like sort of a, a small intimate gathering of a couple guys. And they start talking about the war in Iraq. Um, and he just kind of drops a mention of being, you know, anti-war and being basically an ANCAP. And then later on, it's a scene where um, his friend has basically become like a full-blown drug addict. And they're almost at a point where they're going to fight, like physically fight. And he just kind of comments, you know what? Like I'm a volunteerist. I'm not going to force you to do anything you don't want to do. So it's little things like that, where it's just like, he kind of drops it. I didn't want to beat people over the head with it. I wanted to be really subtle with it. Um, And I just wanted people to be like, what's that? Like, what's a volunteerist? What's a, you know, what's an agorist? That's, I, I don't think beating people over the head with this philosophy works in any way. I think people have to just have like a little bit of interest, just hearing a word and be like, what's, what's that mean? And then kind of looking at it for themselves. And I just, I'm, I'm not going to preach at people like politically. I'm uh, agnostic, I guess. I don't, I don't believe in politics at all. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Did you do, um, you know, how did you do like any 
off the, I don't know what the, I'm not really a writer, but kind of off the book character development where you like wrote a story about them and like did facts about them that weren't in, like, I don't really know how the book writing process works, especially for, for, for fiction. How much stuff did you, did you write that isn't even in the book? Tons. Tons. Okay. Yeah. I wrote full character breakdowns, which basically is like a full biography. I think they were around 12 pages long for each character, like oh. each of the main characters. Um, so there's probably like six or seven main characters in the book. Mm-hmm. So I would do a full breakdown for each one. And then I would kind of do like a short one page summary of like secondary characters. But yeah, there's tons of it in there that doesn't actually make it into the book that I really wanted to explore. And we're trying to write it into a TV series now, which is interesting to go back and look at those character breakdowns. Cause I have a lot, a lot bigger canvas. If we could ever write this into a TV show mm. where it's like, well, I can go down this rabbit hole because that never gets explored in the book. And that's something that to me was interesting. I'll give you an example. So one of the characters in the book is named our love. Great. And most proud character name I've ever come up with. <laughs> <laughs> um, People think it's so stupid, but I think it's great. Uh, anyways, he's his character is native. And in Canada, we have a couple of real issues, uh, like real issues that are facing native people. One of them is um, like over the last, I don't know how long it's been going on, but we have a real issue with native women disappearing and native women being murdered and no one ever being caught or anything like that. It's been an issue for as long as I've been alive. That was something that with a native character I wanted to explore with our love because it's an issue that like I've, I've been around natives. I've lived near native reserves. I know how much of an issue that is to native people. And like, it's becoming more prevalent here. It's starting to filter into the, the mainstream. And then we had another issue with residential schools, which is basically the government of Canada took a lot of native kids and basically handed them over to the Catholic church and the Catholic church tried to educate them. And a lot of these kids also disappeared. A lot of them died in you know very suspicious circumstances. And just, I think it was last week or the week before, they found a mass grave in BC with 215 kids ranging from like as low as age three. What? So this was like a massive scandal that went on. And these were things I wanted to explore with this character because him being a native character, like that to me is is interesting and it's topical and it's horrible. Like that's a case where it's like, you know, fact, real life history being way more interesting and way more important than anything that I could make into fiction. So that was something I really wanted to to look into. And now that I'm writing it into a TV show, it's definitely something I intend to explore. Wow. Yeah. So how, you know, what's the production process like for the TV? I mean, like you got to write it and then you do what you have to pitch it to producers. And, you know, it takes a a lot more money to make a TV show than to make a (laughs) make a book. So how how does that work? Yeah. So I've got, uh, there's a team. I got two, two other guys that are helping me write it. We're probably two thirds of the way done writing the first season. So we're trying to get an agent basically. Um, so trying to get a Canadian agent to take it to Canadian producers, basically you pretty, you pretty much can't get your foot in the door with any production companies without an agent. So step one is, is get ourselves an agent and just kind of go from there. Um, we've, we've tried to build like a full package with a lot of other things to show that, you know, I can write a book, I can write a TV series. We've written spec scripts as well for like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, um, and some other TV series, just because we want to show like, Hey, you know, if you can't get us this show, maybe you, you take those and you go do something with them. And maybe that's our path to find work or something like that. But yeah, I mean, you got to just throw a bunch of crap at the wall and hope something sticks, especially with an agent. So that's what we're trying to do. Okay. Cool. And so, but you write a pilot for, you know, so do you, do you, are you trying to write a whole season or just one pilot or like how, how big of the writing, how big of a writing project are you focusing on right now? Yeah. So we wrote a pilot and then I started kind of shopping it around and then it got to a point where it's like, well, we shouldn't just sit still. Let's just write the whole first season. So that's, that's basically where we're at is yeah. we're just, while we're waiting, we're just, we're trying to write something else right. um, just so that we can go in. Like if it ever happened, which I mean, it's pretty, pretty unlikely, but you never know um, if it ever happened that somebody picked it up, we can be like, Oh, by the way, we have all, we have the entire first season written. Yeah. Like we're, yeah, we're it, good to go. It seems hard to just write a pilot. I'm, I'm sure that that's not what people do. Like they, they write the story and then they put it in the episodes and they try to, 
you know, because it just seems like it's hard to, I mean, especially when the work is already completed and it's kind of like, seems like it'd be fun. I always liked making like a set list for a musical performance and it's fun to like, this one goes here, this one goes here and like the order of the story. Um, it, it, so is that kind of what you're doing as well? Cause you, you're just taking the book itself and making it into one season or like, how are you, or some people, you know, I think certain TV shows they knew in advance. Like I think the wire, they knew in advance it was only going to be a five season thing, but how long do you envision like this book or do, what about a sequel to the book as well? Anything like that? Yeah. So the way I envision it, so you're right with the wire, by the way, uh, yeah. that is the way they looked at it. Five seasons. And Dominic West used to joke about it with his agent when he was like, I don't know if I want to sign on for five seasons. And his agent was like, this thing's never going five seasons. <laughs> his agent was just completely dead wrong. Um, but yeah, he just didn't see it taking the way that obviously the way that it did. Um, yeah. The way I see like for me with my book, I see, I want to make it into an anthropology series, um, similar to the way uh, like American Crime Story or American Horror Story is, where it's a different story every season. Um, so my, my hope is book, you know, second story work would be the first season. And the second book that I'm writing right now uh, would be a completely different story. And that would be your season two. And then the next book, which I've written a couple drafts of, would be season three. And then... Everybody's asking me to write a prequel to this book. So I don't know if I'm going to do that, but that would be theoretically season four. I just don't know if I I'm a capable enough writer to write a prequel. Cause a lot of it would have to happen in Europe and Poland. And I just don't know enough about those areas. I might have to travel over there if yeah. I was ever going to write it. Yeah. Fascinating. But, but yeah. That's the plan. That's yeah. the plan. Cool. So, yeah. So um, let's talk about Canada with the lockdowns and things like that. I mean, sure. I, you know, like I said, I'm not a libertarian, but I have a lot of liberty. I used to be a full ANCAP. Um, I'm more what I, you'd call like a right winger now, but I still think, you know, there should have never been a single mass mandate lockdown, $1 moved around by government. So I'm pretty anti-government. I just don't, don't think it's going anywhere, but um, you know, in, in, I, you know, I do this news show every day for for a couple hours, and the stuff that we've seen out of Canada, I think it's been the it's the worst out of any country. But that's just from what you see in videos and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. was it? Um, I don't know. What was it like up there during the the lockdown? Am I right that it's the worst of all the countries in, as far as is tyranny, at least with the the cops, you know, messing with people? Like, what was it like during lockdowns? And is it still like that? Yeah. So, I mean, the first up until about January, it was pretty minimal. Um, like the first couple of months were kind of brutal. Um, you know, a lot of businesses closed because they just couldn't cope with being shut down and there was really nothing in place for them. Um, and then, you know, around June of last year, we opened up for the most part, like you could go to a patio, you go to a restaurant, everything was pretty normal. There was masks everywhere. We, we started a mask mandate in July. Um, but other than that, I mean, it was relatively normal till about Christmas and then Christmas hit and yeah, we went full authoritarian at, uh, <laughs> at Christmas, so at least funny. in Ontario, like it's, it's province by province. Um, but yeah, they just kept doubling down. And the crazy thing was, is so like in Ontario, for example, Doug Ford is our premier and we basically, you know, he gets the money from Justin Trudeau who's our prime minister and sort of allocates a lot of what is done with it. And he has a lot of people in place, you know, full teams telling him, basically advising him what to do. And he would be advised on all these things. And this is like public knowledge. He would be advised, okay, so we need to do, you know, A, B, and C. And he'd be like, okay, cool. We're going to do X, Y, Z. And then all the public health officials and everyone would be like, no, like, that's not what we said. And at one point, I think it was in March. Um, yeah, he basically made it. The police could pull you over for no reason. And all the public health officials freaked out like literally you it was a stay-at-home order you literally could not leave your house unless you were going and you had to you know basically you could go do groceries and like go for essential goods and that was pretty much it and all the public health officials were like no like this is not what we need this is not going to do anything and surprisingly a lot of the police unions i think it was like 26 police unions uh and or it's not police unions police uh, in city police were like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, and so city of Ottawa was like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to pull people over for no reason. Like, we're just not going to do that. If we get called by somebody about something, we'll go there. If somebody's breaking, you know, a traffic law, 
we'll pull them over, but we're not going to just go and pick people at random and just pull them over. That was very surprising to me. And I was really happy to see that. And then he started backstepping little bits here and there because the police weren't going to enforce it. And there was a huge outcry. And then like a month later, I think it was like the start of May. He's like, basically he got more advice from the public health officials. And he was like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're going to shut down golf courses, camping, like basically what public health officials were saying to him is like, you need to shut down construction sites. You wow. need to shut down like land development, all these kind of things. But those are as big as donors is, is construction companies and land developers. So what he did is he's like, nope, no golf, no, you know, uh, going out camping, basically all these things that are good for your mental health. He's like, nah, just forget about that. And People were, people went ballistic. We were literally the only place in the world where golf was illegal, but I could get my clubs and I could go on an airplane with 165 other people and I could go fly somewhere and play golf. It just, it didn't make any sense. It was, it was insane. So yeah, a lot of the stuff you, I mean, there's a lot that you read that's like, just, I mean, the alternative press gets a lot of stuff, right. But they also get a lot of stuff way wrong. Um, And a lot of what was reported is just simply not true. But then the mainstream media, same deal. They're like, you know, uh, with, with Trudeau and stuff like that, they'd report certain things that he, um, you know, good things he was doing that really weren't, weren't true. Um, And our spending like as a country is absolutely out of control. I think we racked up like 600 billion in debt in the last 15 months and the debt for the previous like 150, how many years? 153 years was like 500 billion. So we racked up more debt in one year than the previous 150 nice. plus years. Nice yeah, pretty done. insane. Yeah, yeah. I, so not great. The 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 reasoning for my uh, assessment that it that Canada was the worst was actually not as much what I've read. It's more so what like videos. Just mm-hmm. videos I've seen of, you know, like that, the, the two or three different churches that were shut down, that Arthur Pulowski guy, you know, that was a big, a big yeah. thing, him getting arrested and just videos where the cops, like there's videos of people, them giving citations out for shaking hands. There's them shutting down parties. They're shutting down churches. Um, so that's really, and now that's a little bit kind of maybe short sight because I'm not looking at. It's not like I saw 500 churches get shut down. So maybe it might have been like an emotional reaction, but just like this should be happening, happening nowhere. And the cops are just messing with random people. And I, and I just, you don't see there isolated incidents in, uh, in America, but I just, it was crazy. The level of police tyranny. Um, Hmm. like, did you see, like, what, what are your thoughts on like the churches getting shut down? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the fundamental freedoms of any free country, right? Is the ability to practice religion freely. Um, that was taken away. That was certainly a scary thing. Um, a lot of that, what you're describing, was happening in Alberta, which is yeah. ironically the most conservative exactly. place yes. in Canada. So that was really, I mean, that was one of the, that was a huge red pill for a lot of conservatives. It's just seeing, like, I'm in a conservative province as well. Doug Ford, our premier, is a conservative. Jason Kenney, who's the premier of Alberta, also a conservative. And those are two places with the worst tyranny in Canada, which is crazy. And I think it was a a big red pill moment for a lot of conservatives to be like, oh, yeah, we can't ever vote for these guys again. Like Doug Ford has an election in a year. He's going to get killed here. Like, And we're going to go back to probably a liberal, um, which is not great either. (laughs) Yeah, there's no there's no winning. There's no political wins. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it was a wild thing. It was a wild thing even for me to see somebody who's uh, you know just kind of always expects that sort of thing to happen just to see it. It was like wow, that's very surprising. Wow, yeah. But, I mean, I yeah. just you know, I just never. It just we just you never know. I mean, because I just live stream from my studio and I'm just reporting on this stuff. And you know, when you go outside, I mean, I live in Tennessee, which is pretty good as far as you know. We don't have a lockdown. We 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 had it for a little bit, but I just moved here. But it's it's pretty good here. But I just like talking to people from the actual place because you get to know the actual the actual deal but it's, it's it, that that was one of the troubling things is i knew that about alberta is that that's mm-hmm. the most you know right wing or conservative um what's your thoughts on i'm, I'm struck what's his name maxime bernier is, is he the libertarian yeah. is that is he the libertarian party guy or is that a different party he's a different party it's okay. called uh, the people's party of yeah. canada yeah, yeah it's a, yeah. it's a populist party okay. um 
I'm personally not a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I mean, he's got some leaning. Some of his economics are good. He is a, he's actually a Mises guy. Um, yeah, really? so yeah, which wow. is interesting, but he's, I mean, he really, so there was a, po- a possibility a few years ago that he was going to take over the libertarian party from Tim Moan. Mm-hmm. Tim, uh, Tim's a great dude. Um, so he was basically like open door, like it's yours if you want it. And Bernier basically kind of learned the ins and outs of the party, how to run a party, how to finance a party, et cetera. And then he just bounced and like kind of left the the party hanging. And it really like he took a lot of candidates from the party and stuff like that. So it really set like the Libertarian Party back huge. Um, and and Tim Moen would tell you the exact same thing. And so to me, that always left a bitter taste. And then some of his I just being that I have like that volunteerist brain, I'm, I always think like associations should be voluntary. And, you know, even though I don't agree with a lot of the rules that are in place for businesses, if a business creates a rule to me, it's their private property. They can dictate what happens in their private property. And he was against that. He's like, his whole thing was like, Nope. If I, you know, if I had an opportunity, I would mandate that I would find any business that implemented a mask policy. And to me, I'm not, I'm not down with that. It's like, it's their business. What they want to do is, is their deal. Um, so that was a big part of why I wasn't down with his whole thing. And he would hold, he held some rallies here too. And just sort of the, the people that it attracted were not really, not really my thing, but I mean, to each their own, I get why people were upset and, you know, Tim did, Tim Moen did some, some rallies as well. And, you know, I didn't go to any of these rallies, but I definitely see why people did. I get why people were upset and I was upset too. I just, you know, I had other things to do with my life. Yeah. Interesting. I, 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 I don't remember who Tim Moan was. I think he was on Liberty Lockdown. Uh, do you listen to that show? Uh, yeah, I love Clint. Yeah. yeah, he's been on the show like three times. He's a good guy. I really like Clint. Um, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what we're going to do for the rest of the um, we have some related questions, but I, what I the, what we do at the end of interviews, sometimes we do what's called uh, like a lightning round where I ask you quick questions and you just give me a quick response. We can use it for a discussion point or whatever as, as well. Um, so the, the, the live chat, you guys can keep uh um, typing in stuff. You're kind of making me laugh over there. Um, but okay. So for, so quick thought though, before we get to that on the mask thing to, to me, I do agree that private, you know, it kind of goes kind of full circle back to the beginning of us talking is that a business can't really exist w- with, without a regulations and licensing. I mean, it can in a perfect world, but it doesn't like every single mm. to become a business, you have to go through the state to get your, licenses the inspections things like that so to me there's almost not such a thing as a private business um they're all kind of agents of the state and Mm. um even more so with the mask i mean you know like do you think that a business should be required to like not required a business should be able to like make you wear a certain type of shirt like to me it's like you're, you're violating person's like personal property with their, their, their body. And that to me is more important than a business's rights to do, do what it wants. Cause you're violating like that person's body. Um, yeah. Do you, how do you like, do you see what I'm saying? Do you, how do you square that with like, do you, do you place the business's rights over the individual's like personal property rights? Yeah. So that's a tricky one because at the end of the day, it's, it's a choice whether I go into that business or not. So that's kind of how I see it is like, okay, if I don't want to do that, I can go buy my groceries at this place that doesn't make you do it. Now the, the problem here is that every business had to implement it because obviously it was a, you know, a requirement. Um, but yeah, like if, for me, if everything was really private, it would be a choice that I could make whether I go here or I go here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do the lightning round guys. You guys are asking some stuff about Canadians. Stop with all the Canadian stereotypes in there, guys. What are you doing? (laughs) Just kidding. Keep going. I love, I love that. How much maple syrup do you currently have on hand? Uh, three bottles in my three bottles. Yeah. Okay. All right. Is it as popular as, as people say up in Canada? Uh, I mean, to me, it's probably more popular. (laughs) Awesome. That is great. What is the, uh, what is the coldest temperature you've ever experienced? Uh, minus 63. What? Yeah. And that's, we, so we, you guys are Fahrenheit. We're yeah. Celsius. Yeah. yeah. So minus, minus 63 Celsius. Uh, it was, we were making a movie in film school. What, where were you? I mean, like what, what you were, were you uh, filming outside? 
Yeah, Thunder Bay. They had the camera froze. Wow. <laughs> it was actual film camera and it froze. So that's guys, that's negative eighty one Fahrenheit. It was yeah, we had heat packs everywhere and we had like uh, electric blankets and things like that to keep people warm. It was wild. Wow. That is I, I did not think you were gonna say that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, it was pretty nuts. I don't really know. I know I've had this before, but I don't know how to is it put, poutine? Poutine? Um uh, well, everybody say says it? it differently. Uh, I say uh, I just say poutine. Poutine. Okay. Is it yeah. overrated? I mean, I had it yesterday, so I would say no. So you're Canadian. Yeah, you're – okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah, there's a truck on my street. I love it. <laughs> What's your um, – this one's from me, not from the chat. Um, what is your thoughts on voting? I mean, there, there's, there's three or four, maybe more of uh, libertarian things that are pretty divided, You know, things like borders, things on like voting, participate in the system, starve the system. Are you a pro-voting or non-voting uh, libertarian? Definitely non Non. Okay. So you yeah, think the if, best, I, yeah. if yeah, if anything, I would make a mockery of it because I I think it is a mockery. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not a fan of it. Not a fan. Okay. Um, is the uh, is the are you pro, the Mountie uniform? You know the Mountie. Uh, are, oh yeah. Are, are you pro or anti that uniform? I mean, I I think it's pretty tight. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. cool looking. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was, they carry guns, right? Yeah, they do. Okay, so they're like yeah. real police on horses. Oh, for sure, they're here. Yeah. yeah, I mean they. Yeah, yeah. If you go around Parliament, they're there. Okay. Um. What this is? This one's also from me. Uh, I want a two, like a tweet's length, uh, definition for what art is. Oh my god, what art is? <laughs> uh, art is a. Oh man, I don't even know where to start. Art is an expression. Art is storytelling. Art is, um, I don't know. Art is, I don't know. Using expression to create critical thought, I guess. Mm. That would probably be the quickest That's a tough definition. One. Yeah, I That's don't know so what hard, I would dude. say. It's like kind of like the, the, yeah, it's like the creative expression of the human condition for but you had inside of art, there has to be a non-essential or non-survival based thing. Like, like if you're growing food can be an art, but it's not art because you need food to live. Like you, you don't need like art to sustain your physical life. I mean, humans might need expression to survive. So, like, but it's, there's an element of like, you can't eat art. You, you well, it's really hard. It's slippery, man. That's such a slippery word, right? That's a tough one. Yeah. 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 Um, this is one is, this is a very common debate that's come up in my live chat lately. When you're listening to an audiobook, do you tell people you're listening to a book or reading a book? Oh man, that's a tough one. I've never actually listened to one before. You've never listened to a book. No. Wow. Never. You're a true reader. <laughs> this is a very guess, I mean, this very div divisive uh topic in my live chat <laughs> everybody's told me to uh to do an audiobook i would say listening to it i would think yeah yeah i i am now been converted converted to a hearer we call them the hearer hearers versus the readers and uh yeah i think that you you should say you're you've listened to it I, yeah, you want to be you want to be specific and you want to be honest yeah. So yeah that's what i would say Okay. Um, Canadian bacon or American bacon? American bacon. American bacon. Nice. Yeah. Um, is there Dunkin' Donuts in Canada or does Tim Hortons have a donut monopoly? Uh, they don't have a donut monopoly, but they are definitely everywhere. I've no, I have not seen a Dunkin' in Canada. Uh, I, I, there used to be one when I was like five. Uh, but yeah, it hasn't, I haven't seen any in forever. Okay. Just Tim Hortons. <laughs> okay. Um, should the Americans have revolted against the king? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, what are – okay, so we we did uh, – oh, yeah, this is a good one. What's your thoughts on the current state of hockey? Like has it declined? Or, like I'm a big basketball guy, and I think basketball has gone straight to the shitter in the last 10 years or so. Like how has the development of hockey gone over your lifetime? um that's a great question so the game itself is probably in the best place it's ever been it is fast and fun and um 
you know, they're still hitting, but the, you know, there's no fighting and they've gotten out a lot of the junk. Like it used to be a lot of grabbing and clutching and stuff like that. So all that's kind of out of the game and it's, it's fast and it's really fun. Mm. Now the NHL, the national hockey league is awful. They don't do a good job marketing their stars. They, um, they don't know how to market the game to Americans and the playoffs, the rules completely change from the regular season, which makes it for, if you're just a, you know, a, an average fan, it confuses you. You're like, wait, that's a penalty a week ago. And now it's not what, what's going on here. Whereas the NBA does a great job of all those things. Yeah. They do a great job marketing their stars. They do a great job of keeping the game consistent. Um, you know, a foul in the first quarter is a foul in the fourth quarter. So if, if you're just an average fan, you get that you're like, Oh, yep. So it was a foul. Then it's a foul now. So yeah, the state of hockey, the league, not so good. The game itself is, is great. Okay, cool. Um, I had to look this one up. Um, someone in the chat asked, what's a garburator? I had no idea what a garburator was. Do you know what that is? Nope. I have no idea. That, <laughs> that's a garbage that. disposal. Um, and it says that Canadians, for the most part, call a garbage disposal a garburator. But wow, did you call it? Do you know it as a garbage disposal? Yeah, and I don't really know too many people that actually have one. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's that you educated me. Okay. Um, I I also don't understand this one at all. Um, how many Timbits can you get for a toonie? <laughs> I think it's ten now. It used to be twenty. They used to be ten cents a piece. What? A toonie is yeah. two bucks. We okay. don't have bills. We have a. It's like a little. It's a coin. <laughs> so it's like a silver around a gold. A silver. Yeah. Oh, I guess, I've seen circle those. around gold. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think you can get 10 now. Okay. <laughs> um, a couple uh, politics related ones and then we'll get out of here. What's your um, thoughts on like peaceful parenting, like spanking, like our, you know, <laughs> open palm, full fist. I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's your thought? <laughs> yeah. So I definitely, I definitely believe in it. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, nonviolent parenting, um, you know, using empathy when you're parenting your kid is super important, um, especially with the world that they're going to grow up in. They don't, you know, the world is hard and they're going to deal with a lot of stress and difficult things. So to come home, they should come home to a safe place that's peaceful and calm and a place that they can be themselves and feel open. Mm. Okay. What's your uh, thoughts Thoughts on Justin Trudeau? Uh, we'll just say not a fan, not a fan. Okay. No. Um, all right. Last question. Then we'll get you to plug your, your work and stuff like that. Cause this is going to be a p- podcast in a couple days. So make sure you tell the audio listeners as well. Um, what is the worst libertarian stereo- stereotype and the best libertarian stereotype? Um, the worst one, <laughs> the worst one is, uh, just people asking about the roads. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the worst one. Yeah, Marauds, dude. That's a meme in itself. In Marauds. Marauds, yeah. yeah. Who will build them? Yeah, what's the most accurate one? Um, I would say when people call us autists. Mm. I would say that's... Great answer. I, that's pretty accurate, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, we have one last... Sorry, one last quick one. Uh, sure. Chilaga says, when I, when I lived in Canada, I was a beaver instead of a Boy Scout. Do beavers... Did the beavers still exist? I think they do. I yeah. was one, too, when I was oh, a kid. Cool. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, that's cool. awesome. <laughs> All right, Joshua. Yeah, it was great having you on, man. Um, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, why don't you tell people how to find your stuff? I'm going to link your book and things like that in the live chat and in the description later. But yeah, how, how can we reach you online? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me uh, on Instagram, author Josh Zabalski. Uh, Facebook, I have a Facebook group as well. Same thing, author Josh Zabalski. And then uh, the Twitter as well author josh sabalski cool sounds good i'll make sure i link all that stuff later thanks for all the info on canada and things like that it's always nice <laughs> to have a you know a, a person from a different country on to you know talk about the mundane as, as well uh, as well as the serious so have a great day all right yeah you too man thanks all a right. lot and say hi to clint for me when you're talking oh to i will absolutely man yeah, i'll tell awesome, you say hi. Dude. all right peace thanks out. a lot see you man Bye. later all right oh i did with i did the music right too i did the music right oh Guys, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm constantly improving my game. Constantly improving. That was, that was interesting. Yeah, I like Josh. That was cool. <laughs> I love stereotypes so much.